hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Love in the Time of Corona podcast. In this episode, members of Humber College and Centennial College discuss dating apps as a form of connection and intimacy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Panelists are joined by special guest, Dr. Christopher Dietzel, who shares his research on consent and sexual violence on dating apps, as well as strategies for mitigating risk, particularly during COVID-19. Enjoy, and thank you for listening. All right, perfect time to get started. Welcome to our fifth conversation in the Love in the Time of Corona series, brought to you in partnership through Centennial College and Humber College. This is where you can find intersectional and multi-community perspectives on love, intimacy, and connection during the global pandemic. I am Dr. Sylvia D'Addario. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the manager of global citizenship, equity, and inclusion programs at Centennial College. I am joined by my friends and colleagues from across diverse areas at both Centennial College and Humber, including Dr. Rick Ezekiel, Sean Kinsella, Aaron Brown, and our newest panelist, Amita Singh. Yay! But... Today, we have a special conversation on digital dating and connection during the pandemic. And we have the pleasure of hearing from our guest panelist, Dr. Chris Dietzel, experts on all things related to digital dating, especially as they relate to promoting consent, safety, and well being in diverse communities. Folks, if you didn't know, we'll stick around and you will surely find out. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I am on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, and I am going to share my screen here. Hopefully you can see that. And while we are not physically at Centennial, I do wanna recognize that Centennial College is proud to be part of a rich history of education in this province and in this city. We acknowledge that we are on the treaty lands and territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation and pay tribute to the legacy and the legacy of all First Peoples of Canada. As we strengthen ties with the communities we serve and build the future through learning and through our graduates. Today, the traditional meeting place of Toronto is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island. And we are grateful to have the opportunity to work in the communities that have grown in the treaty lands of the Mississaugas. We acknowledge that we are all treaty people and accept our responsibility to honor all our relations. It is important that as we have these discussions around consent, safety, power, coercion, in the context of building connection, as well as as we have these conversations about being in the midst of this pandemic, that we recognize how these can help illuminate peaceful and respectful roads to ending violence against diverse Indigenous communities, especially the ongoing violence affecting Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit folks. After this, I will post um, the link for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and Two-Spirit People as well as uh, the link for nativeland.ca if you haven't already located yourself, noting that um, land is often disputed. And so we encourage you not only to check out this link, but also 
if you can, to check out um, local Indigenous communities and organizations for more context on where you are located. So I will stop sharing there. And before we get started, I will say that we encourage you to make use of the question and answer feature down below. Um, we will have time designated at uh, the end of this session to ask um, any of the questions that you have in mind. So to start off, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Rick Ezekiel, uh, Director of Equitable Learning, Health and Wellness at Centennial College to give you some context and background on today's topic. Rick. Thank you, Sylvia, for kicking us off in such a great way and, and for everyone for joining us this afternoon for this discussion. Um, so, so as many of you will, will know who have joined us for the Love in the Time of Corona series before, this has been an avenue for discussion about ways that we can find connection um, with each other, ways that we can start to think about how, how we can meet our intimacy needs in the context of a global pandemic, while also keeping in mind safety considerations um, and, and different ways that the pandemic is impacting different communities um, and each of us as individuals within those. And, and a natural way that many folks have been, or platforms through which many folks have been uh, connecting during the pandemic, of course, has been a range of different dating apps uh, and ways to virtually connect in the context of the pandemic. Um, so, so as we've been having these conversations and realizing that um, we, we have had dating apps with us for some time, many of us have different experiences with them, um, they've become even more salient and top of mind for many folks in the context of the pandemic. And that so often our experience with them is very, very mixed. Um, it, it was actually really timely for us to be able to invite our friend and our colleague, Dr. Chris Dietzel, to join us. Um, and, and Chris's work and research has really focused uh, on um, ways that dating apps can be used as tools for, for connection, but, but also experiences with consent and sexual violence among uh, 2S LGBTQ plus communities. Um, and interestingly, with big congratulations, uh, Dr. Dietzel just defended his uh, dissertation last week. So, so we are really fortunate because we're hearing some of the, the findings of uh, his amazing research that are hot off the press. Um, and, and Chris's work has been uh, published and put out there in book chapters, as well as his work um, in, in educating communities uh, around ways of engaging in healthy forms of connection through dating apps, as well as ways of maintaining safety and well-being while engaging in that platform. Um, so, so I really value in reading Chris's uh, research and having seen his, his work, the, the ways that we can talk about both, you know, the challenges we face while we're navigating um, the, the different types of apps as a source of connection, as well as the reality of um, some of the really concerning behaviors we experience but also the ways we can show up in those spaces uh, in ways that really foster connection and safety and support of others. Uh, so, so I know we have lots of great words and exciting topics that, that'll be shared by Chris and, and then uh, by our panelists and the unique perspectives that they bring to this topic. And we really look forward to what the audience has to say in terms of your experience over this past year. My goodness, it feels wild to say that. We were just talking about how it's been uh, just un under a year since our, our first iteration of this initiative. So um, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. And, and with that, I think we're diving right into some of uh, what, what Chris has prepared for us. 
Oh, hi, sorry I didn't see you there. My name is Chris and welcome to my fireside chat. In today's session, titled Love in the Time of Corona, I'm going to be talking to you about people's use of dating apps during the COVID-19 pandemic. As such, we're going to be talking about important topics such as maintaining intimacy and healthy and unhealthy connections. I'm also going to share with you some of the results of my research, which has looked at LGBTQ people's use of dating apps, sexual violence, and sexual consent. So, why don't you join me as we learn more about these fascinating topics. So this is the presentation for Love in the Time of Corona. As I explained previously, and as I will explain again, this is only part one of the two-part session. So let's begin. I would like to take a moment to recognize the land on which I reside. I am currently located in Montreal. I'm not sure where all of you are coming from, but I just want to note that uh, we have to be aware of the lands on which we reside. And for me in Montreal, this land is historically known as Jojage, which is a gathering place for many First Nations people. It is important to do land recognitions because we want to recognize our positionality, our power and histories, both past and present and to encourage people uh, to be critical and take action to inspire change. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to vis visit the site that I have uh, listed on the screen called nativeland.ca. This is an interactive site in which you can learn more about the land on which you reside. This is me, as you saw already from my little video introduction. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a white, able-bodied, cisgender, gay man. My name is Chris Dietzel. And I, to give you a bit of background about me, I am a PhD candidate at McGill University where I study sexual consent related to dating app use. I am a research, in, a research assistant on IMPACTS, which is a seven-year multi-million dollar SHRC partnership grant that studies, sexual, that studies sexual violence at universities. And on IMPACTS, I specifically focus my research on sexual violence against, sexual violence against, against LGBTQ plus people, excuse me. I'm also doing a research project uh, with a couple of colleagues, one at Concordia, one at McGill. Uh, he was previously at UCOM, actually. And the three of us are studying dating apps during the COVID-19 pandemic, which I'm going to present research on today. I also was recently uh, a visiting scholar in Australia where I studied trans and gender diverse people's experiences. I'm going to talk about that at the very end of this presentation. And then lastly, uh, when I finish my PhD, which is going to be in April, I'm going to be doing a postdoc at Dalhousie University. And so there I'm going to be studying sexual violence, dating apps, and COVID-19 to continue the work that I've already started. Also, if you'd like to learn more about me, I encourage you to tweet at me. So my Twitter handle is cdietzel. And then you can also visit my website, which is mcgill.ca slash define the line slash Christopher Dietzel. So here's the presentation and session outline. As I mentioned before, this is part one, this video of a two-part series. Uh, in today's video, I'm going to be talking about how people have maintained intimacy during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm going to talk about healthy and unhealthy connections on dating apps. And I'm also going to discuss harm reduction and managing safety online and in person. Part two of this is going to be the live session, which is going to be facilitated on April 13th at 1.30 p.m. through Centennial College. And that's going to be a live session where I discuss, uh, talk with a panel and do Q&A and stuff. And I'm going to discuss how dating apps have been used to navigate the pandemic. I'm going to consider how we together are going to consider how different factors influence our experiences. And as I mentioned, this is going to be a panel. So I encourage you to come to that. Again, that's April 13th at 1.30 p.m., but be sure to register. So the first part of this presentation, I'm talking about intimacy. 
And there's many different ways that people have maintained in intimacy during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm going to specifically focus on dating apps, which interestingly, there's been an increase in the number of dating app users, especially in the first few months of the pandemic. So like in March and April and May, there was a big influx in the number of people who are using dating apps. And there's also been an increase in the amount of time that people spend on dating apps. So not only are there more people using dating apps, but the amount of time that people spend on dating apps has increased. As you will see from the next few slides, uh, some ways in which people have maintained in, maintained intimacy during the pandemic has been through virtual dates or other forms of connecting that is, of course, not in person. Uh, but there's also been what I'm going to call on this slide per personal intimacy, but I'll get more into that in a minute. So. The project that I mentioned before, in which I'm working with a couple colleagues at uh, UCAM and Concordia, uh, we what we did is we spent three months, we did three months of um, observations on dating apps. So we had 16 different dating apps that we followed for March, April, May, um, and we took screenshots and we subscribed to their, uh, well, we were like non-active participants on the apps. Anyway, we collected a lot, a lot of data about the apps. And so what I'm going to share with you, as you can see on this slide, are some screenshots that we've taken uh, from our time studying these apps. So first of all, Many apps they encourage their their users to be uh, to be active in virtual dates, so the apps themselves shared suggestions for intimacy among their among their users. Now, of course, this was not intimacy only in the sake of being like romantic or sexual, but it's intimacy in terms of connecting. So as you can see from the first two uh, screenshots on the left, one from Coffee Meets Bagel and one from Scruff, uh, they're just encouraging people to connect with one another. As you can see from the third screenshot, this was from Lex. Uh, this was another, uh, these were other suggestions of how people can connect during the pandemic. And the fourth screenshot is from Grindr, which uh, was done through one of the Instagram stories where somebody was giving tips for dating. Now, some of these suggestions were actually very, very specific. Uh, so you can see from like the first and second screenshots that they gave very specific ideas about what users can do. Uh, the third one is again from an Instagram story, but on the on Hinge's profile, for example, on their Instagram profile, they actually gave a series of videos that had ideas for how people would date from home. Uh, the apps, some apps actually also gave um, events that were facilitated by the app company. So as you can see from the fourth screenshot, Plenty of Fish, what they did is they hosted social hours. And so you could log into the app, uh, partake in this like video conferencing type of software, and you could date through the app using video. On that note, there were actually many, many different apps, not many, but there were several apps that uh, launched new features during the COVID-19 pandemic for the first few months of it. And so some of these included like virtual dating, like the apps would build into their software uh, video conferencing. Instead of encouraging people to go to Zoom, they actually just decided to update their software, for example. So this is the part about personal intimacy. Um, actually, so not the straight apps, so not the the one the apps that are marketed towards like heterosexual publics, but the queer apps um, and Bumble, not being a queer app, but being a feminist app, 
at least that's how it's self-presented. Uh, so these apps actually really encouraged people to engage in personal intimacy. So as you can see from these screenshots, this type of personal intimacy included self-love, masturbation, sexting, sending nudes, porn, and virtual hookups. So having sex via cam or using audio, so like a phone call or something. But um, particularly with the queer apps, the LGBTQ plus apps, this was very, very uh, present, much more present than in the heterosexual apps. Uh, and so these companies really encouraged people to engage in different, perhaps non-traditional or non, uh, yeah, I guess you could say non-traditional uh, sexual interactions. So that was personal or facilitated through technology. So the next part that I'm going to be talking about is healthy connections. And so first and foremost, it's important to note that the app companies have really, uh, especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, they wanted to bring a lot of attention to the fact that people need to stay home. And so the apps, especially in the first week or two, so mid-March, the mid-March 2020, what they did is they had, um, as you can see from the Bumble screenshot on the far left, they had uh, pop-ups notifications in the apps themselves. Uh, this was also from uh, the third one. Um, and then they had, some of the apps had different integrated sections where they would really bring awareness to COVID-19 and COVID-19 resources. Uh, there's a couple apps, including Tinder, that what they did is when you were like swiping left or right through, um, through the app, Every, every so often, periodically, one of the profiles would not actually be a profile. It would be an ad from the government that would say, like, here are the public health guidelines. Click here to get more information. Uh, so there are many different ways in which the apps actually publicize public health guidelines and government restrictions, especially in the early, like in the first few weeks, uh, month or so of the pandemic. What the apps also did and have been doing uh, is sharing user statistics to reinforce their messaging. So not only showing what the government is asking you to do, but showing what other users are doing in order to encourage you to do what they are doing. So essentially it's this, this um, they're trying to use um, peer pressure for lack of a better word, they're trying to show that other people are doing this and you should too. And so this was, um, so the yellow screenshot is actually from Grindr's website. These are statistics that they published back at uh, end of December, 2020. But what they did is they had uh, a lot of people, I think they had like 10,000 users who uh, completed a questionnaire. And so they have shared these statistics on their website. So as you can see in the minimizing risk category, 80, 80 88% of respondents said discussing COVID safety helped them make a decision about whether or not to meet up with someone. Um, and then you can also see 31% say they've hooked up with a mask on. So Grindr is specifically showing these percentages, these statistics from their users to show that this is normal. This is a way that everybody is actually interacting and you can do it too. And so you can also see that from these screenshots from OkCupid and Plenty of Fish, where OkCupid is showing how are you planning on dating during the coronavirus? And the majority of respondents said, texting, after that video chatting, phone calls, and then not dating. While Plenty of Fish said eight in 10 singles take dating from a distance seriously, and they won't date somebody who isn't taking social distancing seriously. <clears throat> 
So on this slide, you see uh, some resources, some screenshots of resources and messages that apps had shared in order to promote mental and sexual health. Um, so the, far, the one on the far left is actually from Lex, where they had um, crowdsourced resources for COVID and crowdsourced resources from mutual aid. Um, and so those, were, those took you to Google Docs where you could get a lot of information. Excuse me. Bumble, as you can see on the second screenshot, uh, really tried to, this was one example, but they are one of a few apps that really tried to reinforce uh, that it's okay if you're not at your best. And so you can see that also from the screenshot on the far right from her. Uh, the third screenshot in yellow is taken from Grindr, which uh, was a pop-up notification that came when you logged into the app. And so what, and you can see these are like three little buttons. Um, they would link out so people can learn about mental health, learn about sexual health. Um, and as you can see from the second bullet point, Grindr says, right now can wait, make plans to meet up in the future instead. So playing on the right now, which is uh, ten, like it's how Grindr has often talked, uh, encouraged people to meet up right now for sex typically. They're specifically saying right now can wait to encourage people to, uh, again, social distance, not meet in person, et cetera, et cetera. Not only did this advice show up through apps, the apps themselves, as well as their social media, but it also has been advertised on their websites. And so here are two screenshots, one from Tinder and one from Grindr, where you can see they give suggestions about how to connect during COVID. Um, specifically with Grindr, you can see that they have a lot of drop-down options, which again, you can access via their website. Other apps, uh, like OkCupid and Hinge have taken different approaches in order to encourage people to interact in healthy ways. And so you can see on the left, OkCupid would actually, OkCupid, one thing that the app does is when you create a profile, you can go through this like questionnaire and that helps with their algorithm match you to people. Um, and so what they did is they added questions specifically about COVID-19. And so in this screenshot, you can see, how do you plan on dating during this time of COVID? And people could say if they're gonna message, use phone calls, video, or they're not dating. And so users then could fill in this information and be matched with people who were at the same level of comfort and safety. Um, and as you can see, you can prioritize to how, say how important this is for you when being matched with somebody on OkCupid. Hinge on the right uh, used this uh, launched a new service called Date from Home. So this was uh, specifically in the app, and as I mentioned before, this was a way for the app to update their software to encourage people to use their software while also paying attention to the pandemic. And so, as you can see, uh, it might be a little bit difficult. So sorry if it's a little bit too small. Uh, but what you could do is you could save your interested or ready to um, engage in a video call with someone, which they called Date from Home. And so if you both said yes, you are ready to engage in a video date, then uh, the app would send you a little notification. Uh, this, was, this is also really interesting because it allowed people to show, uh, to kind of have a secret way to show that they're interested in somebody because if you click that you're ready for a video date and the other person clicks no, then of course you wouldn't get the, the little pop-up message. So here again, the app created like a whole nother type of system to facilitate these connections based on people's personal comfort levels. In terms of other ways that apps have facilitated healthy connections or have tried to facilitate healthy connections, I should say, uh, Bumble and Tinder, for example, have uh, 
marketed and created uh, these systems that um, allow you to be quote unquote verified so that rather than just upload some type of random picture, it's to demonstrate that this picture is actually of you. And so you can go through this process where they give you like a symbol or a sign that you have to, uh, maybe you make a funny face anyway, you you mirror, you mimic the um, like the face or the, the sign or whatever. And then you use your front facing camera on your phone so that you uh, do the same exact thing in the in the prompt that they give to you. And so you I think you have to take like two or three, I forget. Uh, but anyway, you take a series of photos and then it's verified by the company. And once they've once they've decided that you are the same person based on, you know, these randomly generated prompts, uh, then they will say congratulations and you have like a blue little check mark next to your profile. Um, of course, there are issues with this in terms of verification. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really gonna focus on some of these issues, but if you want, I can talk more about that in my session. Grinder, what they did is actually back in 2019, so this was before the pandemic, is they added a couple of new uh, features to the app. Um, so again, changing their software. What they did is they added a section where on the profile, somebody could say if they are interested or not interested in accepting not suitable for work, so NSFW picks, and they could also put on their profile where they're comfortable meeting at. And so, um, for example, like with this NSFW picks, what it's referring to probably, like it's actually not defined on the app or on the website, but if you've ever used Grindr, uh, you might understand that this is referencing unsolicited dick pics or other non, uh, non-consensual sexual explicit material that you receive. Um, and so what you can do is you can say, as you can see from the screenshot on the left, if you are never interested in accepting NSFW pics, not at first, or if yes, please. Now, of course, there are issues with this as well, such as maybe you don't want one of these answers to be the same for every person. Uh, it also means that um, it's a very static response, not only in terms of which other users you're interacting with, but the day and the time, the mood, et cetera, that you're in. So unless you're gonna go through and change this every time you go into the app or every time you interact with a different person, uh, you know, it's not necessarily accurate. Of course, it can give a good idea of a person's comfort level. The meet at is specifically about talking about meeting in person. And that one, um, as explained on the slide here, you can see this field will allow you to specify if you're able to host or not, while at the same time, it will let you specify where you prefer to meet. And so there's different options again to say if you feel comfortable meeting in a cafe or at somebody's house or at your house, for example. Tinder, very recently, what they added is um, another feature, which is actually a partnership with an app called Noonlight. Uh, this is not available in Canada, but the idea is, uh, to encourage, to help people feel safer and to give, to like institutionalize systems that can make it be safer for people. So instant, so for instance, with Noonlight, what you do is when you open the app, you can hold it um, if you are, if you don't feel safe. Um, and so as you can see on the screen, it's explained where you can summon help to your exact location with the top of a button. And this is done silently. So for instance, you could just open your phone and tap on the app and it alerts an emergency contact or the authorities so that somebody can come and find you. And they have recently partnered with Tinder in order to address issues about safety and consent, sexual violence, et cetera. Unfortunately, it's not available yet in Canada, but maybe this is something that will be coming soon. I highlight this just to show that this is another way in which apps are taking into consideration issues of sexual violence and consent.
this is, uh, so Hollaback is actually an international organization that addresses sexual harassment. And so they've, what they've done is they've put together some social media resources. Um, these are not specifically for dating apps, but as you can see, they do have social media resources. So guidelines, guides for Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Reddit, and YouTube. And so what you can do is you can go to their website and you can download, you can download or you can view online these different guides so that you know how to, um, what the like legal responsibilities of the app are, how you can um, report through the app, the different ways in which you can um, report something like in, in terms of a policy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they're really, really well spelled out. So I encourage you to check those out, not only for safety in app use, but as you can see here, safety on social media. So, Yes, there are healthy ways in which you can connect with people, but as you can tell from these last few slides, uh, there are, of course, unhealthy ways in which people connect. And so in this next section, I'm going to share with you some, uh, some of the findings that I have from my research about sexual violence. And so, of course, I want to just be very explicit that I'm giving a trigger warning right now so that if you need to stop, if you need to pause, if you don't want to watch the rest, uh, you can also come back to this later. Yes. So... On the first slide, you can see that um, what I have found through my research is that there's a bunch of different ways in which people experience non-consensual interactions on dating apps. So for instance, in general, um, what might happen is a dating app user will make an assumption about someone else based on their information from their profile. And so based on the text that they have in their profile or the images that they have, the information that they filled out, uh, somebody might make assumptions about what that person wants rather than asking that person themselves. Uh, second, in terms of online behavior, I found that people experience non-consensual interactions in terms of images as well as messages. So in terms of images, unsolicited dick pics is the most common example, but there's of course others, sexually explicit photos that somebody might receive non-consensually, non-consensual messages, these could be aggressive, harassing, pressuring, or insisting. And then again, going back to conduct, um, if somebody is saving photos without permission or sharing photos without permission, both of those would be non-consensual. To be clear, saving photos not only means saving to your phone, but if you, um, so yeah, saving to your phone, but then sharing not only means like distributing forward to another person, such as in copying and sending the file so that somebody else has the image itself, um, but also if you take your phone and hold it in your hand and show it up to somebody. Even if you have maintained uh, control over the image, this is still non-consensual because somebody else, uh, somebody's image, somebody's sexual image most explicitly like is probably going to be shown to somebody else without their consent. Now, I also researched the ways in which people think about consent on dating apps, not just non-consensual interactions. And so what I found is that some people think that consent just doesn't apply to how they interact online. Other people actually thought about consent in terms of connecting to an app, such in like where they would log into the application. And so the act of logging in would be the act of consenting. Other people thought about consent as interacting online. So what by engaging in a conversation, by sharing pictures, responding with pictures, et cetera, et cetera, the consent process was ongoing so long as it was you were interacting with the person. And so, of course, in this way, consent can be explicit as well as implicit. Explicit being like, do you want to share pics? Are you interested in this? Versus implicit where you might uh, send a picture and somebody replies with a picture. So it's uh, conversation-based versus, um, or sorry, behavior-based in terms of implicit, but then conversation in terms of explicit.
I also want to be clear that, of course, there are difficulties when inter like when thinking about consent is continuous on a dating app. Um, as I mentioned before, being present on an app does not mean that you consent to whatever happens in this space. But you know, this is I, I'm bringing this up so that you know that some people think this way. Uh, second of all, there are challenges when you base consent on being continuous because as we know with apps as well as online interactions in general, uh, you could be involved in a continuous quote unquote ongoing conversation, but you might talk on a Monday and then not talk again until Wednesday and then talk for several hours and then not talk again until Friday. So it's, there's, it's challenging to understand what this idea of continuous means, especially when we're thinking about consent. Along with that, a lack of response. Does that mean that somebody is actually saying, I don't consent ever, or are they saying, I don't consent now? Um, a lack of response, of course, doesn't give you much information. So it's there again, a lack of response can complicate the consent process online. In terms of consent, when you go from apps to meeting in person, some of my participants thought about consent as a contract such that whatever they discussed online was going to happen in person. So for them, what they really thought was that the online discussion was a description of what had to happen, what, what they would guarantee would happen in person. And so in this way, consent, kind of like connecting, was seen as a one-time action that even though it was given online, it, would, it was expected to continue in person. Excuse me. Other participants thought about consent as an assumption, where what they would do is when they go from meet, chatting online to meeting in person, they would think about it whatever they talked about on the line as a tentative agreement or an outline for what could happen. So this wasn't a contract in the same way, but such that, that they would go with the flow. So as long as their actions in person aligned with what they discussed or what they expected based on their online conversation, then that was assumed to be consensual. And so this is this is different than consent as a contract where it's like i expect this will happen versus this is more of a gray area where people really just wanted to again go with the flow the third type of consent that i found in my research when people go from apps to in person is whether or not something uh is is continuous so this meant that like just because you said yes online doesn't mean it's always yes so both online and in person through explicit or implicit means you can renegotiate or continue to negotiate consent. Participants in my study also did experience non-consensual interactions. So what they said was they had experienced somebody stalking them online, somebody uh, using their social media accounts to find them uh, through different, so like, you know, on, on, on an app, what you can, on a dating app, what you can do is you can connect it to um, like your Spotify, or you can connect it to your Facebook, you can connect it to your Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the participants had said that those, uh, their linked social media were actually used then to, like somebody stalked them via those. Uh, another participant talked about uh, someone who had found out where they lived based on the geolocating features of their app. Uh, Unfortunately, some of my participants experienced sexual violence from their use of dating apps. One participant uh, had was forced into giving sex. A, another, a couple participants actually talked about feeling obligated to have sex. One talked about uh, somebody who did not take no for an answer. And then there were actually a couple participants who talked about assault and rape. Uh, one of the participants in my study actually also uh, admitted to committing an act of sexual violence against someone else. Uh, he was um, like, he felt very 
badly about it and he didn't think about it in terms of what sexual violence is until afterwards. Um, which is something I could talk about more is this, this challenge with uh, identifying sexual violence in your experience or in somebody's other experience and then what do you do with that. Um, I don't have time to get into that now because I know I'm already, um, I've been going on for a while, so I'll keep going with the with this. But if you have questions about, um, if you have questions, please feel free to ask me when we get to the in-person session or the live session, I mean. Um, in terms of harm reduction, I just want to be very clear that harm reduction is a strategy to mitigate things that will happen. Um, so to think about harm reduction, you can use examples like safety, like uh, seat belts, or you can think about um, putting on sunscreen, you know, in these situations, you know that there is always a potential for harm, but you take approaches in order to reduce harm and be safer. So you can, t with dating apps, it's not guaranteed that you're going to be perfectly safe. Although there are different strategies or software or like, um, you know, different things that the apps have put in place in order to support their users, there are things that you can do as well in order to reduce potential for harm. So first is uh, you can verify another user's profile. As I mentioned before, even though there's flaws in the verification process, um, if you can, if you connect with somebody whose uh, app profile has been verified, then it, it could be safer for you. Uh, you can also verify, you can go into your own type of verification process where you look uh, and check their other social media. Of course, don't do this as I was talking about before in terms of stalking, but you can just make sure that um, you know, you could search the person's account and see to make sure that it's actually the same person across all platforms. And then if you can't find them, you know, that might be a red flag for you to say like, oh, this person might not exist or yada yada. Uh, in terms of other strategies for harm reduction, what you can do is you can stay on the platform. Uh, so rather than give somebody your personal cell phone number, which uh, could exacerbate the potential for abuse or harassment, continue to message and chat via the platform until you truly feel comfortable and taking it to you know another space. You can protect your personal information in your account through a couple different ways, which I had talked about previously, but what you can also do, and it's important to do, is you can flag or block accounts and report suspicious behavior whenever you come across anything that is harmful. Um, you know, if you experience harm, that's of course very bad, but you should also try to stop other people if you can, if it's safe enough for you and you feel comfortable doing so, it would be good to uh, alert dating apps to harmful behavior that is happening so that it doesn't help happen to someone else. In terms of harm reduction for meeting in person, of course you don't want to rush in order to, to meet somebody in person, especially during the, the pandemic. You have to take your own uh, feelings, considerations, comfort, safety into account. I'll talk, I'm going to talk about that next, uh, but resist being pressured into meeting. You should also decide beforehand where you want to meet and stick to that. I encourage you to meet in public spaces uh, and stay in those spaces. You know. Um, Again, you don't want to rush the process, and even if the stuff is going well, it's going to be safer for you to be surrounded by other people than if you go to somebody's home. Uh, similarly, I encourage you to be in control of the transportation that you have to and from the meeting so that, not, so that you're not relying on your date to take you places. Uh, you can also inform a friend about where and when you're meeting and arrange a checkup after a certain amount of time to make sure that you are still okay. Um, in terms of consumption, you know, it, it would be good to minimize alcohol and or drug use, especially since this is the first time or early times that you're going to be meeting somebody from the internet. Uh, it's not to say that alcohol or drugs cause sexual violence or cause physical violence. Rather, it's that 
course, if you are in an inebriated state or they are, uh, there's potential for harm to happen. You can also, it's also good for you to pay attention uh, and reduce harm during COVID. So it, I encourage you to talk about your habits, um, how you're acting during the pandemic. So if you're socially distancing, if you have a bubble, how many people you're seeing, uh, if you're washing your hands, if you're wearing a mask, you know, if you're going to be meeting somebody for the first time, you want to make sure that your expectations and their expectations uh, align so that you both feel comfortable and you both are safe during uh, and after your meeting. So similarly, discuss your expectations for meeting and for dating. If you are going to have sex, if you don't want to have sex, what sex during the pandemic might look like. Uh, you know, it's not easy necessarily to talk about these things. Um, but as we've learned from the pandemic over the past year, it's very, very important that we have these conversations and be very explicit about what we feel comfortable or uncomfortable doing. And so on that point, I really want to emphasize that you should recognize your needs and don't compromise your comfort or safety just because you want uh, intimacy or sex or something or you want to meet somebody from an app. Don't, don't compromise your comfort or safety just for a one-time interaction. I also want to take a moment to talk about vaccine status. This is something that's been uh, becoming much more popular, especially in the States, uh, but we're starting to see it in Canada as well, is where people will talk on their profile about if they are vaccinated. Um, and so you can see here, okay, Cupid, for example, said, will you get the COVID-19 vaccine? That's fine. But uh, there's actually been some reports of people on Grindr, for example, that are putting in their bio or their profile name, like vaccinated top, for example. Um, and so while I do think there's pros to talking about vaccination, uh, such as like fostering discussion about safety and health and normalizing and encouraging people to get vaccinated, there's also some cons to this. So first and foremost, vaccines do not replace other harm reduction techniques. So as I talked about before, if you're uh, wearing a mask, social distancing, washing hands, you know, just because you're vaccinated or somebody else is vaccinated doesn't mean the pandemic is done. So don't use vaccination as an excuse not to engage in these other techniques. Um, secondly, people could lie about their vaccination status. Just because somebody says on their profile that they have been vaccinated doesn't, you, you have no idea if they've actually been vaccinated or not. So be careful. It's not to say that everybody's lying online. That's not what I'm trying to imply. It's just, I, I encourage you to be careful about, uh, what people say, because you, you may or may not know if that's, it's the truth. The third con that I really want to highlight about uh, putting vaccination status on a profile is that we have to note that vaccines protect the individual from catching COVID, but we don't have enough information. We don't have enough data yet to know how well a vaccine protects or prevents the spread of COVID to other people. So even if you yourself are protected um, and might not get sick from it, it doesn't necessarily mean that other people in your vicinity, you could still be asymptomatic. You know, this, the science is truly very, very new in all of these areas. So just again, just because vaccination is done doesn't mean that um, the pandemic is done. So I really encourage you to pay attention to uh, and be careful about vaccination, vaccination status on, on dating apps specifically. So at this, I'm actually a little bit over time. Uh, so thank you for sticking with me. If you've made it this far, I just want to highlight that I, you can download uh, for free a couple of my recent publications. So first is, as I've been talking about earlier in this presentation, I did some research on dating apps during the pandemic. Uh, so you can do that via my academia profile. Uh, so here's the link for that. And also you can see via the screenshot, um, 
I helped produce a report about safety, risk, and well-being on dating apps. And so this is the research that I conducted when I was in Australia, where we looked at diverse dating app users' experiences with dating apps. And so there was a focus on trans and gender diverse people um, in a publication that I haven't showed on this but if you're interested on in receiving, I can certainly send that to you as well. But if you want more general results about the project, you can download this report for free. Um, and finally, I just want to encourage you again to attend the session Love in the Time of Corona on April 13th at 1.30 p.m. If you'd like to know more information about my work, you can click on or not click on, you can visit this website um, to learn more about my research. But again, thank you for, um, for watching this presentation. And I hope that you will attend the session on April. Yay! That was incredible. Thank you, Chris, so much um, for the amazing and comprehensive research and review of the current trends and realities of digital dating, safety and consent and harm reduction, especially as it relates um, to unique experiences for diverse communities. Um, I think you're really providing such valuable perspective and clarity, um, as well as strategies for building connection and reducing harm in an era where we are just getting started in having these conversations, um, especially around sexual violence prevention. So thank you, um, or sexual violence prevention online anyway. Um, I encourage folks uh, here today to use the question and answer um, option down below for Chris, and we will get to those questions shortly. But at this point, I am going to officially light the kindling and stoke the flames for this fireside chat that we are about to have. Um, and to kick this off, I am going to reinvite uh, Dr. Rick Ezekiel, Director of Equitable Learning, Health and Wellness at Centennial College loving all the fireside chat analogies we need like that uh you know youtube fire flowing in the background for this i think we could really lean into that um but yeah well like huge echo of uh sylvia's thanks uh chris for the amazing presentation and, and for sharing your fantastic work with with us and, and our respective communities and the folks who joined the call um and yeah i, I guess so much of this resonated right it, it's really cool to see how you take in a systemic approach to understand what it's feeling like for users who are navigating these experiences and and providing some really tangible recommendations around hope what what folks can do um and i guess for me and some of what we often do on the panel here is sort of share some of our experiences on the topic the lens we bring and then some of the questions it brought so, so that's what i'll do a little bit here um, and in doing so we'll share a little bit of my positionality so um i'm a queer identifying man um, and in the context of the pandemic, uh, had previously been sort of practicing non-hierarchical polyamorous relationship connections. So, so multiple different connection points and, and of course limited those quite a bit in context of, of the pandemic for, for safety reasons. Um, and, and I think like many, I, I have used uh, dating apps a little bit during the pandemic here and there and, and particularly uh, Grindr and Tinder. Um, and so much of what you shared resonated a lot around sort of um, just ways of engaging uh, of so often conversations not being deeply grounded in consent of you know the first thing you get is a dick pic not a hey how are you or um whatever it might be and then in the context of the pandemic i, I feel like 
I've had this hope, but maybe it's like my unrealistic optimist hope that the pandemic would deepen our understanding of consent because everyone's having to do it differently. Like in what, what I, I, I would love for our communities of saying, hey, like how many contacts have you had? How, how uh, what, what's your sort of exposure risk? What are the safety behaviors you've been engaging in or not? Um, how do we have informed discussions about the risks we might be taking on or not taking in the context of dating or, or maybe meeting someone new? Um, and, and it's been interesting in my experience in using apps, I, I've come across a lot of people who are still there in that headspace of want to meet up and, and, you know, that kind of unconsensual pick or, or want to meet up first. And, and I'm just kind of like, what? Like, we don't have nearly enough information to make this decision safely right now. Um, and really wanting those conversations about, you know, what practices each of us have been engaging in, what we value and want to feel, you know, safe in meeting up. Um, and also more generally, what we want in relationship, like what would be hot? What, what, what are we, uh, you know, looking forward to? What, what are the ways that we, we want to connect in this space? Um, so to be really honest, like on the times that I've dabbled back into it, I've kind of left feeling frustrated. And I was kind of like, oh, this isn't what I was hoping to get out of this. Like if, you know, whether it was sort of boredom or loneliness or wanting to find connection or intimacy, it's been hard to find that in apps. And, and I hear that in some of the stories you, you shared of your participants that desire to connect, but sometimes the experience is so disconnecting. It actually is like even more so feeling like, are, is everyone else doing this a bit differently or something like that? Um, so yeah, I guess that's maybe what circles around a, a question that came to mind for you, Chris, in, in sort of um, your research and what you heard from your participants. And, and, you know, I know I've had a few good experiences on meeting folks during the app. Uh, I'll say like so some of my connection points on apps have led to sort of sustained virtual chats or good conversations during COVID. Um, not that many, um, some historically, but did you hear from participants like examples of what was happening when they had a really joyful experience with an app or a really good experience um, with an app and what that looked like outside of sort of harm reduction, managing safety, managing the frustration? I think many of us share that that's, that's a reality of some of what we'll be navigating, but um, what did those joyful connections look like and how do we curate more of them if you have any thoughts or reflections on that? Right. Yeah, uh, so that's a, it's a great question. Um, I must admit that the majority of my research has been looking at like the harm reduction, sexual consent, sexual violence aspect. Uh, so our conversations were, were much more focused around like that realm versus like the pleasure uh, pieces of it. But of course, you know, in those conversations that I had with participants, it does come out where people talk about not only the bad experiences, but the good experiences. And I think what I would say to that is that, you know, apps are just a space um, as much as there are bars or clubs or schools or, you know, like apps are, are just another space where people can congregate. And the intention, yes, by being labeled a dating app or a hookup app or something is that people are looking for certain things. But, you know, people use apps for so many different reasons, you know, to pass the time because they're bored. They want to like if they're moving around a city, if they're traveling internationally, you know, it's to also discover queer places or to different discover different publics. So yes, there's, you know, there's dating components, there's connection, um, people use it to discover their gender, their sexuality, what they like, what they dislike. So, you know, apps are, are truly just a space where people can make it into what they want it to be. So there's incredible potential there, which I think, um, you know, we, we have to understand as well. And so in that regard, it, 
there is potential, you know, for people to meet your best friend, to meet a partner, to go on a date, to have several dates, you know, like there's, there's a lot that you can do with it. Um, my point, as I, as I mentioned in the, in the presentation is that, you know, we just, we have to recognize that just because it's online doesn't mean it's always safe. And we also have to recognize that just because it's online, it doesn't always feel safe. And I think that's something that you were actually just talking about, um, which I, I really want to distinguish is that, you know, there's, there's important nuances here between what is quote unquote objectively safe versus what feels safe. Um, and so some of these spaces can certainly feel unsafe or the, the connections that you have when you meet in person from an app, particularly do, during COVID can feel very unsafe uh, because people are still trying to negotiate their interests, negotiate uh, pleasure and, and consent and things. Um, so the other thing that I just wanna, um, I was taking notes as you were chatting and the other thing that I wanted uh, that I wanna note at this point is that um, in these negotiations that people are having online, uh, whether or not that materializes into an in-person interaction, um, I, I would like to think that the pandemic has changed how people negotiate, uh, just kind of it's, it's forced this into um, an interaction where you have to talk about things. Um, I don't know about the long-term terms effects of this, but um, we've actually just applied for a grant that we're hoping we'll, we'll, we'll get. But that's one of the questions that we want to look into is how, is how has the pandemic actually changed people's consent practices? Has it influenced how people think about consent? Um, and with my doctoral dissertation, like with my research, since I collected the data before the pandemic, uh, we're hoping that once we get this grant, we can we can kind of do a comparison to see how, if or how things have changed. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave it for there. I'd love to hear what other people think as well for folks to share their perspectives, but thank you for that, Rick. Thanks, and next I will call on Sean Kinsella, who is the director of Ape Fire at Centennial College. Uh, Tansi, everyone. Uh, was a Trent River uh, So, and I'm still learning the the Anishinaabe name for the Trent River. It's hard to hard to find because um, obviously it's not originally called the Trent. Um, so, so much there. Um, I think where I wanted to to start is a little bit of of talking about. Uh, my experiences of the apps as a sort of non-monogamous uh, Crip Indian Indigiqueer. And so the big piece for me that, that feels hard with, with apps is um, that apps are very much designed of uh, around, I think, and I'll get into this a little bit later, um, some level of transactionality um, to them. And um, for someone with my identities who tends to be very upfront with them, sort of on apps for almost like a self-screening, self-selecting out process. Um, there is a little bit of that balance that I often think about, about uh, at what point uh, do those identities stack up to being sort of unfuckable, right? At what point do those identities stack up to be too much, right? For someone who is particularly looking for maybe a more casual connection. And so what I often talk about there is as an Indigenous person, um, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, discussion about how we're born political because of the Canadian context in particular, but because of the Indian Act, we don't get a we don't get a choice as to whether we're political or not, and therefore, our, um, sort of arguably, casual is very difficult. And then for me, you add on being non-monogamous, you add on uh, being crip or disabled, and it sort of makes the idea of something being casual and safe like very difficult a proposition. 
And so what that leads to uh, is a little bit of a scarcity mindset. And so particularly, I would say for, for other trans and gender non-conforming um, folks that I know, you know, as folks who are sort of being perpetually traumatized by settler colonialism, um, you know, sometimes dating can feel very difficult to begin with. And then you add this intersection of sort of um, the, the bad pieces and the traumatizing pieces of apps. And, you know, one of the things I think that is, is difficult is, you know, if we do want to say engage on apps and we want something to be casual, how do we do that without having to essentially educate, right? So the number of times, you know, I have, uh, 2S or IndigiQueer or Envy on my on my profiles and the amount of times that I then have to like explain what that is to someone as opposed to someone just Googling it, right? Because all of those things are very easily Googleable. Um, is that a word, Googleable? I made it up, it's fine. You know, but using Google, like it's not hard. And then you wouldn't have to ask me who is just trying to out, you know, just out here trying to trying to date. Um, and then the other piece is, I think in relationships and what does healthy relationships look like as indigenous folks, you know, we have to think about treaty and we think about for us sort of, what does it mean to have good relations, right? And, you know, in particular for indigenous folks, we have kind of a funny thing. And, and one of the reason I think we often use apps is because uh, one of the questions we have when we date each other as indigenous people is are we related and how are we related and how closely are we related to the point of like when I date particularly like Cree Métis folks I have to ask <clears throat> what community are you from where you where's your family from and we literally sometimes have to lay out family trees <laughs> between us before we're like okay it's go time like this is you know like it's that added level of of um of complexity around sort of what should be something that should be pretty straightforward um and then this is more um a, a question i think for chris and, and I'll, i'm going to say some more things and then give you a chance to loop back so if you want to grab a pen there the other thing i wanted to to ask a little bit about is the safety measures around intersections of race and gender and that sort of piece right because one of the things that i have seen in a lot of um studies on on the apps is that they're incredibly racist right uh, and that's about dating preferences right so the idea that um, folks have preferences that are non-mutable and that those are okay um, but the intersections of where that becomes racist or homophobic or transphobic or you know or um, sexist or uh, or engaging with misogyny like all of those pieces are really valid critiques of apps and particularly because they tend to be um you know at best you know fairly transactional in nature and fairly as i sort of said casual in in their intent i think um and then the other question that i have a lot of and thinking about is around uh the fact that we're all exhausted right so even if you make a good connection with someone on an app and it moves into texting or it moves into um you know for me it often moves to like instagram and i i use instagram messenger to stay in touch with tons of people um you know and it moves to something that is a little bit more sexy in its nature you know it's also that non-response can be just I forgot what day it was. I don't know what time it was. I thought I replied. Like there's all these considerations with COVID that we're all like perpetually exhausted as we go into like, you know, at this point, well over a year into the pandemic. Um, and that I think the other thing to think about from a safety perspective is what do we mean by safety? Is it cultural safety? So for me as a, Anishinaabe, uh, Mihia uh, person, um, that's often talking about like your physical, spiritual, and mental safety. And those all can be different, right? So for us, we often have to think of that spiritual safety as like a separate category that's not often brought up. Um, but like, you know, how that may play itself out is like, um, people being really appropriative is an example, right? So like, it's really uncomfortable when someone's like, you know, like a white person who's like, I'm a yogi, or like, I use crystals and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, well, shit, <laughs> like, it was going so well. Um, 
And so I think also the statistical pieces around violence for 2S uh, gender nonconforming folks is, is, a, is a piece and, and um, the very real risk of physical violence. And so to be honest, like in some ways, the apps have been very um, liberating, liberating during pandemic because we can't meet up. So as a crip person, I'm like, okay, I don't have to worry about being perpetually exhausted by like going on, you know, a walk in minus 25 degree weather or something, because we can just like text back and forth and I can be laying, like lying in bed and not doing much else. Right. And so in some cases, I think there is a liberating nature of that, even as it can be quite exhausting because it takes that physical safety component out. However, you know, uh, even getting folks to respond on the app can be really difficult. And then the other side is like Grindr is a good example where, you know, for myself, I deleted it because I was tired of, even though I explicitly named, like, I don't want dick pics. I don't want to see your random junk um, unconsensually. You know, there's also this, this element as an indigenous person that we talk a lot about around how does consent even exist on stolen land? And how does consent exist as folks who um, have had our nose essentially denied as a, as a, as nation, right. And as cultures. Uh, like when we say no to extraction, like it still happens anyway, right? When we say no in, in context. And so the learning that we we often get, and this is what I hear from a lot of my peers and colleagues is we're very used to like working through harm with people. We're very used to being willing and ready to kind of like be like, well, it's fine, you know, and to not have our nose res like respected. So that also leads to, you know, like sometimes with with COVID, it's been actually quite nice because it's created a nice buffer in space, right? Um, so, you know, I think um, though things feel more complicated within COVID, I think there's also, it opens up conversations around safety and things like, and I, I know uh, Rick and Chris, you're both talking about this around like how we um, have to navigate like STI status and number of partners as a non-monogamous person, right? And risk looks so different because, you know, um, people are making very different choices. So like some people are going on vacation and some people are, you know, like, you know, going on vacation flying and some people have not seen their family in, you know, a year and a half, right? So, you know, those are normally things we don't have to navigate and make things a lot less casual. Um, but again, like I want to sort of interrogate that notion of like, who is it casual for in the first place? Cause not me, <laughs> you know, and that's, it's great. Uh, but there's also grief there for folks who we're able to have those more casual connections that I'm really seeing and a lot of like frustration um, and, you know, uh, and that sort of like vigilance that's beginning to wane as the pandemic's gone on. So, you know, those are some pieces that, uh, that I've been thinking about. Thank you, Sean. You've certainly shared a lot for me to respond to. So thank you for this. And thank you for sharing your experiences. Um, I'm popping in the chat right now, a link uh, to a paper that I, I wrote last year with some colleagues. This was from the research that I did in Australia, uh, where we specifically worked with trans and gender diverse dating app users uh, to learn about their experiences, uh, negotiating like personal safety as well as sexual health. Um, and so the link that I gave should be, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, but the link should be for free downloads. So if you click on that, you can go and get um, like the paywalls removed. Uh, so you can check that out. And so in that, these were from uh, workshops and interviews that we did uh, I don't remember it specifically. I think it was, oh, it was like 14 uh, Australian trans and gender diverse dating app users experiences. So um, in that actually, Sean, I, I heard of a lot of what you were saying resonated with me based on the stories that I had heard from these people's experiences in terms of like, um, on one hand, the apps can be very accessible spaces because it gives you so much more control. You can like interact when and how you want. You know, there's, there's ways to report and block. You can, um, 
of course, leave the app. Um, you can use it in, in real space as well as virtual space or a physical space as well as virtual space. But at the same time, you know, it, as much as, you know, like you were saying, as, as much as somebody can put on their profile, you know, I don't want this or please respect that. There's, there's no real way to hold people accountable to this. And the apps are, are not spaces that have, you know, as much as their technology where they could, you know, like if, if there's a little checkbox that like said, as, uh, as I talked about in the presentation, you know, if I don't want to accept NSFW picks, you know, maybe there could be some technological software that like uh, doesn't allow people to send images immediately, but you know, they haven't done that type of, uh, you know, integration into the app. Um, anyway, all that to say, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think, you know, these are, these are spaces where, where, well, so we, what we also have to consider is like who has created these spaces um, and work on apps. Like, I mean, this is nothing new either because there's been many people who have talked about technology, you know, that has been developed by white cisgender, upper middle class people. And so those types of biases have been built into the app systems. Um, and so even though it, there hasn't been much research on dating apps specifically in that regard, I do think it's something very important to keep in mind is that these systems that we have in society are continuously being embedded and perpetuated in the structures and the cultures of the apps too. Um, you were also talking about like how these are, how these can be, how safety can be like a very personal uh, term, uh, you know, and that, that can mean so many things in terms of personal safety or in terms of like physical safety or mental or emotional or sexual, you know, there's, there's many different dimensions to all of this. Um, and what we have to keep in mind is none of this is static either. You know, this can so depend, depending on your mood, who you're act, interacting with, COVID, non-COVID, time of day, you know, there's so many different factors that safety doesn't ever have to be one specific thing. Uh, it can be so many things and it can be dynamic and it can be changing. Um, I think it's also interesting because like if we're then looking at uh, safety around race and gender, you know, what was it last summer after the Black Lives Matter protests, um, there was like Grindr and, and Scruff and a few other apps like decided to remove this ethnicity filter that had been embedded within the apps for a long time. Um, and there was a bit of contention because there were some people who were saying that this was really good that Grindr, for example, removed this ethnicity filter uh, because then people can't engage in like whitewashing of the app. But then there were people of color who were saying that you know, this is actually really unfortunate that Grindr removed the ethnicity filter because for them, it actually was an opportunity to remove people who are who are typically unsafe for them. So they were actually able to remove white people or, or based on different filters, they could remove people who they've often had uh, violent experiences with. And so for them, the ethnicity filter was actually, for some people, the ethnicity filter was like a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, this is, it's not an excuse, but it's certainly uh, something to keep in mind is that so many of these apps are trying to be so many things to so many different people. Um, and it's, it's, you know, there's, there's so much to untangle here. And that's why I'm so happy we're having a panel discussion about it because, you know, there's, there's so much uh, to say and I could keep going on, but I, I want to give other people a chance to share too. So those are just a few of my thoughts, Sean, in, in response to what you've shared. So thank you. Thanks so much to both of you for that. Um, I would love to introduce next, Erin Brown, Coordinator of Sexual Violence Prevention and Education at Humber College. Hello. Um, thank you for this presentation. I know we're all saying it, but it like really is truly 
so awesome to see this, Chris, especially as someone who works in sexual violence prevention and education. Um, when I was thinking about dating apps, I was really thinking about how, um, for me as a queer person who um, spent, you know, from ages like 18 to 25 or something like that in Northern Ontario, uh, I've been a very pro dating app for a while um, as a form of con uh, like connection and really trying to find community because um, there weren't really a lot of people who are out. Um, so I was very excited for this conversation today. When I'm thinking about um, dating apps during COVID, um, I spent the first four months or so of the pandemic uh, living in a hotel in Buffalo with my mom uh, and then back in Barrie with her and my stepdad while I supported with caregiving. Um, and so obviously there was no meeting up with people during this time. And I was really relying on dating apps for a sense of connection. Um, especially because like I, um, my parents are lovely people. Um, I <laughs> really value our relationships from a distance often. And so it was really nice to be able to connect with people outside of my household as well. Um, upon returning to Toronto uh, last August, um, it was also nice to give up celibacy for a period of time. Um, but these interactions were always really prefaced with lengthy conversations about safety and, and risk mitigating behaviors and bubbles and that sort of thing. Um, and I think for me, it was really important that, um, you know, I was meeting people who I had been conversing with on these apps for sometimes like several months at a time. Um, and it's been really interesting to see who is receptive to those types of conversations during this period and who is not. Um, and I, I think that that is a really good indicator of um, who to trust and who to meet up with and, and who not to. Um, I did find that I was spending more time on the apps than I would have liked. Uh, and that I was really relying on it for um, connection that was like often uh, skin deep, like pardon the pun. Um, a really great queer songwriter, Milo, had released a song uh, called Bored to Tears um, in August last year, and it was like about being bored to tears by men uh, he was encountering, which really resonated with me. Um, so I ended up taking a dating app sabbatical for the rest of 2020 and even really a large portion of um, 2021 because I was finding that like I was craving connection during this period of isolation, but those weren't necessarily meaningful connections that I um, was experiencing. Um, I've since rejoined the world of dating apps, but my time on it has been really much more restricted. Um, I've also like gone and caught the feels for someone not on a dating app. Uh, and, you know, there's not conversations about mutual vibes yet or in geographic circumstances that are uh, affecting any physical intimacy. Um, so I'm still using those dating apps as an opportunity to um, express a degree of intimacy with other men um, and still find that connection. Um, but I, um, it's been sort of this weird space to, I think, navigate uh, on these apps. And um, I think um, some are used for certain behaviors more often than others. Um, I'm also mindful that like I am just getting over COVID-19. Um, I like to joke that I am no longer a gold star gay because Miss Rona has been inside me. Um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this weird pressure right now as well. Um, 
to disclose that I've had COVID-19, even though I'm no longer contagious and I actually, you know, have those antibody yaddy yaddies, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but I, I feel really nervous about having those conversations um, because, you know, I think that there are feelings that like, well, what did, you know, what had I been doing that, you know, resulted in me getting coronavirus, um, even though I was following all the appropriate guidelines. And so I think like for me, I'm just, there's hesitance in any of those interactions because I think that there's going to be a lot of potential for like shaming or assumptions about my behaviors and so I just feel really like weird in this space now um I think generally um and I, I know uh, Sean has spoken about like you know Instagram for for long-term connections as well um I really find that Instagram has like really in many ways been better than any dating app um, for finding, you know, forms of connection for intimacy during the pandemic, um, you know, maintaining mutual thirst follows or flirtationships, etc. Um, that has been really like sufficient for me uh, to tide me over and feel a deeper sense of connection to the people that I've been engaging with on Instagram as opposed to the dating apps, um, which really is just like a whole bunch of like things that were swirling in my brain. Um, as I was preparing for this uh, conversation a bit. Um, I do think when I was listening to your um, presentation, what I was actually really intrigued about is these sort of like social good approaches that, or, or features that these um, apps are creating. And I was just sort of thinking about, you know, and, and wondering were these, um, were many of these features you know, already in place before the pandemic started or has a lot of this been really reactive? And then I'm also curious, um, you know, to some degree, how, like, whether you can forecast, you know, do you think that um, there will be any sort of trends in this kind of content once the pandemic is over? Um, and what do you perhaps see those addressing? Um, so that's sort of where my brain is at. Yeah, these are great. I'm loving all these questions and reflections. So thank you all for, for sharing. Um, yeah, so Aaron, you, you've, you've mentioned a bunch of things that I want to uh, respond to. Um, first is like the, the point at the very beginning when you were talking about like how your app use has changed. Um, and studies have certainly shown that like how people like based on geographic locations in terms of rural versus urban, you know, that can have a big difference in terms of how people use the app and their experiences and expectations for the apps. Um, the research that I conducted uh, and have been conducting has been mainly based out of urban areas. But uh, if you're interested in talking more about that, we can we can certainly have a chat. Or like if if there's folks on the call uh, who are interested in learning more, you know, there there are differences in rural versus urban, uh, which is really interesting. Um, I think it's also really interesting because you talked about these like different time interactions that you have on the apps. And I think that's something that's important to note as well. And it, it might be a bit obvious in some senses, but you know, app interactions and not just app interactions, but online interactions aren't necessarily synchronous, you know? And so when we, you know, you might have a, a conversation with somebody over the course of like several months um, and they respond, you write and they respond and et cetera, et cetera. And so like in that regard, from like a consent perspective, it, it really challenges this idea of continuous consent is like, how are you expressing, how are you understanding continuous consent if your interactions are not uh, back and forth in real time? 
you know, and so how does consent, how do people then think about consent over prolonged periods of time uh, where we're already, especially from a sexual violence perspective, when we're educating people to, to keep checking in. Um, so that's something I just want to encourage you to think about. Um, so in terms of like taking a break from the apps, yeah, that's something that I personally did as well. Um, I've been using apps for years and like for me in, in January, I decided I just needed to take a break because I felt that uh, just the exhaustion of everything was, was a bit too much. Um, for personal reasons and safety reasons, etc. But I just, I've, I've taken a break and I haven't gone back on them since. And I'm kind of unsure to be completely honest, like to what extent I want to re-engage with that or not. And I haven't made up my mind yet. So I still haven't logged in since January. Uh, but you know, that's the kind of thing in um, none of, I think what we have to understand is even our, our relationship with apps themselves is a relationship, you know, and it, if you delete it or if you have it on your phone, but don't open it, you know, all of this is, is a very uh, dynamic relationship that you can have. And, you know, it doesn't mean that it's right or wrong or good or bad, but you can, you can keep negotiating not only your interactions with other people, but your relationship with the app itself. Um, when you're talking about having COVID, I'm, I'm sorry that you had that. I'm sure that hopefully it seems like you're doing okay, but, you know, take care. Um, there's, there's been many people over the past year who have drawn parallels to Corona and the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, and I think that, you know, hearing you share your story now, you know, I think it's something that as queer people, we, we were um, very aware of uh, the stigma that's attached to people who are HIV positive, um, you know, for this, this extra level of shaming and stigma that is attached with this idea of having been infected and like, what extent were you personally responsible for your own infection? Um, obviously, there's many, many, many layers to this, like in terms of politics and sexuality, et cetera. But um, I think I think that's going to be one that's going to be very interesting to see in the coming months as people have vaccines, as people catch corona, et cetera, is just like how there's this idea of stigma that comes in, stigma and shame that comes into relationships. Um, you also talked about Instagram, you know, and that's something that I want to note as well is that uh, the research that I've been discussing has mainly been on like traditional, quote unquote, traditional dating apps like Grindr and Tinder and Scroff, et cetera. But Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and really social media in general can be a dating app or a hookup app in and of itself. And I think that's what we also have to recognize is that these spaces, again, can be used for so many different things. And just because there's a category that, you know, when you go to Google Play or the App Store is, is called dating, you know, these social interact can, interactions can truly happen on any other site. And as you said, Aaron, uh, you know, Instagram has certainly become a lot more... Uh, flirtatious with its photos and things that people share. And so I think in that regard, you know, in some senses, uh, it even encourages these types of like semi-socio-sexual interactions. Um, sorry, I've, I just like had a whole list of things, so I'm gonna keep going. Uh, but just like in terms of features that came out before versus during COVID, um, yeah, there. what was really interesting to see is that, um, with the onset of the pandemic a year ago in March, um, the app companies almost had a captive market in the sense that they people needed uh, an outlet and the internet was that outlet for connection. And so um, the companies really took this opportunity to play with features. And so they, like Hinge I talked about, had this uh, date from home 
um, where they would like they had this now video feature where people could can interact through the app, you know. Um, Bumble, no, it was uh, Tinder had like their passport feature that was open uh, and they allowed people to use it for free for like a month. You know, there was, there's so many things that the apps, there were so many different features that the apps tried during these couple months because they, they kind of were, they, they did have this semi-captive audience where they could just like play with things and see what worked and see what didn't work uh, in, a, in, a, in a situation, in an environment that was already so uncertain. Uh, so I think that was really interesting to see. Um, and I talk about this, we talk about this a bit in our book chapter, which I can discuss more or share if you want. Um, I think I put the link in the chat, but if you're interested, I can reshare. Um, so I definitely think that there's going to be, uh, in terms of like a, a feature and trends for post-pandemic, I think that one in particular is that the apps at the beginning were using other online services to encourage people to connect. So like apps would say like use Zoom, use Skype, use FaceTime, et cetera. And then the app started realizing that they wanted to keep people on their platforms. And so then they started to develop their own video calling, their own uh, messaging types of things. Um, and so I think that's something that we're gonna, I mean, there were a bit of trends of this pre-pandemic, but I think specifically with the pandemic, I think apps are gonna be uh, maybe going more into like trying to really keep people in their app as a full experience. Um, and so I'll, I'll be curious to see what other features and stuff that they bring out. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna be interesting to see how this changes uh, people's interactions and the, the software of dating apps for sure. Yeah. Great, thanks. And I just wanna introduce our final panelist, Amita Singh, counselor and sexual violence support coordinator at Centennial College. Thanks so much, Sylvia. Um, and thank you all for all those um, amazing insights. I'm, you, you guys stole a lot of what I was going to say, so <laughs> I'll cut it short. Um, so interestingly enough, I have never actually used dating apps. Um, I, so I'm going to be speaking from the perspective of a counselor today. Um, and so before I get into what I see in my office and, and some of the issues that I see, um, I want to give you all like a teaspoon's worth of psychoeducation, which is just a fancy word for background information that helps explain why we're feeling the way we feel. Like Erin mentioned, or somebody mentioned, being thirsty um, and, you know, craving that kind of connection. I, I'm picking on Erin, I know. Um, it's, it's not just because we want to hang out again. It's because connection and intimacy are some of the things that we really need to feel whole and human and fulfilled, right? So right now we are depleted of so many of the things that we need, including happiness chemicals like serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin. Um, we're depleted of interaction, stimulation, maybe our jobs have been, have been impacted. Um, and we see the impact of that depletion in the disruption in our sleep patterns and our eating patterns and our disrupted digestion, our weight might be up and down, our stress might be through the roof, and we know that stress comes with a whole host of other issues. Um, our moods might be like a roller coaster, so no one is quite feeling like themselves. Um, and seeking connection is one of those ways, one of those pathways back to a sense of normalcy. So if you recognize yourself in any of this, just recognize you are not alone in the least. Um, and then in terms of what I see, 
sorry, like it just fell behind me. In terms of what I see in my office in relation to these apps, um, so there are a few caveats here. So keep in mind that one, as a counselor, I hear a lot of the negative. Um, I, I hear a lot of the negative that comes out of people using these apps. And also uh, the examples that I'm gonna give you in a second, they come from a pool of majority cis, able-bodied, heterosexual people. So it is no, by no means representative. Um, experiences can look very different based on intersectionality. So the difficulties that I see occur a lot of, occur because of a lot of what um, my fellow, fellow panelists have shared, which is that the world of dating apps seems like a bit of a minefield. Um, you know, some are paid, some are not. There, there's so many of them. Chris has mentioned so many that I didn't even knew, know existed. Um, you know, there's questions about privilege when it comes to who's on the paid apps and who's, who's on the free ones. Um, there's the navigating the nuance in um, the different cultures of different apps. So two people will interact very differently if they meet on Tinder versus if they meet on Hinge or on Bumble or on one of the others. Um, then there's the numbers game, right? Like, should I swipe right on as many people as I can in the hopes for any match? Or um, do I, am I more picky in the weeding out process, but then risk the chance of not getting matches at all? And then there's that needle in the haystack issue that um, I think Chris mentioned where many people on the apps are not necessarily there for the same purpose like people are using it in different ways. So it can be hard to find people who are looking for the same things that you are. And then there's that ever pre present stress of, um, you know, trying to create conversation with someone out of thin air, which in itself can raise insecurity about if one is funny enough or attractive enough to keep another person engaged when you know that they're matching with other people. Um, so, the important thing about this list is that it was compiled after discussions with people ranging in age from their late teens to their mid-30s, all at different stages of life and all with varying levels of familiarity with apps. Um, and these, all, these issues all take their toll, right? So I see the impact on confidence, body image. I've heard apps feel just like work, right? We're just looking at another face on a screen. Um, also, a couple of panelists have mentioned, like, given COVID, you might match with someone, you might have really good um, conversation, and so you're getting that little bit of a, a dopamine spike, right? You're feeling great, um, and then recognizing, okay, well, it's COVID, so you might not be able to actually meet that person uh, in person. So then that dopamine spike fizzles out, and you feel frustrated and kind of sitting there like, what is the point of all of this? Um, and then I believe Sean had mentioned this where, you know, there's that, there's that um, feeling of um, dealing with like perceived social rejection. So maybe you're not matching with people or maybe people are ghosting you. Maybe people are standing, standing you up for uh, virtual dates or when people are toxic and harmful um, in the way that they can be on these apps that we've, we've discussed. Uh, so that social rejection actually codes the same way as physical pain in our brains. Um, so imagine if you're 
body is constantly perceiving that it is in pain, imagine the toll that that takes on you physically and um, on, your, on your wellness, right? Um, so now that I've painted the small but gloomy corner of the bigger dating picture, let's talk about some potential solutions. Um, so the first one uh, was just recognizing that we're in a pandemic, right? And I know this goes without saying, but I think uh, what I've been seeing and what I've been feeling for myself as well is that many of us feel like the world um, should function and that we should function in very much the same way as we did prior to the pandemic. And uh, that just really leaves us frustrated, right? Frustrated with the world, frustrated with ourselves. Um, so maybe this might not be the healthiest time to seek relationships, but if we're gonna go down that path, let's do it safely. So this brings up that harm reduction um, point that Chris was making earlier. Uh, so a different take, my take on it is that we're trying to offset the impact of, offset the negative impact of these apps on your well-being. So I'm gonna go through this really quickly because I know we're short on time, but um, so the first one, a couple, actually all of my panelists uh, mentioned this, creating distance. Um, so giving yourself some time, like I think someone mentioned a sabbatical, right? Taking some time to recharge, regain your sense of self, um, and just put a pause on all of that negativity. Um, it really helps to gain some perspective as well. So someone mentioned, you know, being exhausted and not necessarily remembering who you responded to on an app. And for the person who sent that initial message, it can feel like you're being, like someone's being ghosted or ignored. Um, so getting some perspective and recognizing that, um, you know, some of that perceived toxicity might just be that people are really tired right now. And it's hard to gain that sense of perspective when you're in the depths of it. So taking that, creating that space. And then the next tip is to create happiness or wellness where you can. So I'm not gonna lie, there's nothing like that intoxicating rush of a new relationship, right? Um, but you can do things to decrease your stress and increase your overall wellness. So think along the lines of doing things that help you feel replenished, not just paused. So instead of you know, pausing the dating app and watching a movie, for example, maybe try engaging with skills or hobbies that you truly enjoy. Um, also, someone else mentioned this, instead of investing in connection with people um, or platforms that might be unsupportive or, or toxic, maybe try reconnecting with people around you um, who, who spark positivity and support. Uh, another quick piece of brain chemistry, um, serotonin, so one of those happiness chemicals, has been shown to increase with bright light and also with exercise. So summer is right around the corner. I know we're coming out of a, a dark winter, um, but we have some sunlight. And in general, I want to go out on a limb and say that most of us have access to either, either of those things or at best both, right? So if we can get some sunshine on our face and get that serotonin up, that will really increase your wellness levels. And the very last thing that I want to leave you with is not a tip, but it's just kind of like my hope, which is that um, you've been gentle with yourself as you're exploring these apps. 
Um, if you find a new relationship that feels safe during COVID, that's absolutely wonderful. But if not, that's okay too. Um, this time will end. Um, and in the meanwhile, if you need some help getting through it, um, the counseling teams at Centennial and Centennial and Humber are here to support you um, if you're a student. And if not, there are some really great therapy options, low-cost therapy options in the community that I'll send out um, as a resource when we're when we're done. So with that, I'm gonna pass it over to Sylvia. Because Chris, you already answered my question. Thank you. I know we're over time, but maybe I will give Chris a minute if you have any pieces that you did want to respond to that. I mean, there's a lot that I could say, so I I, I feel like I don't I shouldn't even like jump into it because I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, but I'd be happy to you know like if people have questions, you're you're welcome to uh, contact me. My information is listed on my website, which I've shared. Uh, you can certainly reach out. So if if folks have questions or concerns, uh, want to learn more about my work, you know, we can certainly keep the conversation going offline. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much. To conclude, I want to formally thank Dr. Chris Hietzel for being here with us today to talk so candidly on uh, digital dating and bringing such a nuanced perspective on safety, consent, connection during the pandemic. Um, as he mentioned, if you do want to continue following Chris and his work, you can do so on social media at cdietzel on Twitter and Instagram and at mcgill.ca slash define the line. Uh, just to note, uh, Amita did mention this, if you are a student and looking for additional support, you can connect with us at Centennial at the Center for Accessible Learning and Counseling Services, that's CALCS. And if you are a student at Humber, you can connect with folks at the Student Wellness and Accessibility Center, that's SWAC. Um, I wanna also thank the panelists, Rick Ezekiel, Aaron Brown, Sean Kinsella, and Amita Singh. And I want to thank you all for joining us today. We will see you next time.